0: Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website
1: at wildwoodchurch.org. Today, we've asked Kevin Bradford to come and to share some perspective with us from God's Word, specifically on the area of world missions and how you and I can participate in that. Uh, this is a, an exciting thing. If Many of you know Kevin. Kevin and his wife, Becca, for many years, over two decades, Wildwood partnered with them in uh, their ministry in Brazil and in the Middle East. Um, but now, uh, Kevin and Becca are back here, and although they're spending some time in Brazil, they're also helping direct our global outreach efforts here at Wildwood. And uh, so thankful to have him here with us today to help us look into God's Word and gain some perspective about how we can better support the 18... Uh, different families and 10 different countries that Wildwood is partnering with to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So please join me in welcoming up Kevin
0: Bradford. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) It it seems like quite a while ago, but actually it was just a few weeks that we had the Super Bowl. And um, you might remember that seven... Seconds into the first quarter of the Super Bowl, the uh, effect of the crowd, the crowd noise uh, was such that uh, Peyton Manning, standing behind center, uh, the center couldn't hear the snap and uh, snapped it anyway. The ball went sailing past and uh, into the end zone where the first of uh, Seattle's scores uh, took place. Um, Peyton Manning remarked after the game that the crowd noise was in fact much louder than they had expected. Which really shouldn't have been all that surprising because uh, the Seattle fans uh, had gained a reputation throughout the season uh, for being the 12th man. Uh, This incredibly fanatic uh, group of fans, uh, their cheering was measured to pass 100 decibels uh, regularly. Um, I think they even set a world record at one point. Uh, I think it's been surpassed, but it uh, it was a record at the time. That 12th man effect, Uh, when you think of the phrase, the 12th man, it actually precedes Seattle quite a bit. And Seattle, in fact, is paying uh, some royalties uh, for the the group that patented that phrase, which is none other than the Texas A&M Aggies. Uh, Yeah, there you go. In uh, 1922, as the story goes, um, a certain E. King Gill was sitting in the stands of the Cotton Bowl and watching his team uh, Uh, many of the players on that team, in fact, become injured. And so at a certain point in the game, the coach turned to Gill and said, it's time to suit up, Uh, we may need you. And so he went, obediently suited up, he had tried out for the team before the season, uh, so he wasn't completely unfamiliar with the process, but uh, the coach had him stand there, he didn't actually play in the game, uh, but the 12th man tradition was born. In fact, it really wasn't born at that time, with all apologies to the a and fans here, uh, it was in 1900 that a sports writer was talking about the effects of the home field crowd uh, in uh, a team that was, was marching on to victory, and he coined the phrase, the 12th man. But actually, with apologies to, to both of those groups, the 12th man effect precedes all of that quite a bit. In fact, it's much, much larger than just American football or sports in general. The church has its own 12th man effect, and we can see that most clearly in the area of missions. If you have a Bible with you today, I invite you to open to the book of 3 John. 3 John, near the very end of the New Testament. If you find Revelation, it's probably just a page or two to your left. It's a small letter a few verses, and I want to unpack a few of those verses with you today. Third John, written by the Apostle John, it's actually a personal letter uh, from him to a man named Gaius, and it's interesting when we think about the context. The the church, as you know, was started with just a a small group of Jewish disciples, mostly from the area of Galilee in Palestine. And yet from those humble beginnings, it spread. It spread to become a multinational, multicultural organization uh, with a great influence in the Roman Empire. Um, By the time that third John was written, uh, the church had already expanded considerably. And you can think of many reasons why. There were Christians of all sorts that were sharing their faith, uh, that were vibrant, that had a great testimony. But a lot of the expansion of the church that took place, especially in new cities or new regions, it was due to itinerant workers, uh, people that would go out and work full-time at uh, preaching the gospel or teaching the Bible or discipling people in new regions. Uh, You might remember those uh, people from Cyprus and Cyrene that Luke describes in in the book of Acts. They went as far as Antioch, so the church in Antioch was begun by some of these itinerant workers. Well, there there were probably hundreds, if not thousands, of these itinerant workers, and uh, we see, we meet one of them here in this letter, uh, and John is going to talk a little bit about it. So, the verses that I want to focus on are actually five through eight, John gives his greeting to Gaius in the first few verses. He commends him that he's walking in the truth in verse three and in verse four. And then in verse five, he gets to his request, his exhortation for Gaius. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. In these four verses, I think the heart of this letter, we can see what John is about. He's encouraging Gaius to continue supporting these itinerant workers, to help them in their work and in their ministry. I'd like to focus on this for just a few minutes and, and ask a, a couple questions, a few questions uh, to really unpack this well. First of all, we could ask, who exactly are these workers? John, John describes them here. In verse 5, he says um, uh, they are brothers. So it wasn't just that Gaius was showing hospitality to random people, though, though that's maybe not a bad idea, but these were brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says that they were strangers to him. So they were not just people there in the the same community, uh, people that Gaius already knew, but they had come from somewhere else. And in verse seven, he says it was for the sake of the name that they went out. Now that's interesting because it wasn't just some group of Christians that had happened to show up uh, in Gaius' community that needed housing or, or help of some sort, But these were people that had a particular purpose, they had an objective, and that was to minister in the name of Christ. It was because of Christ that they had gone. In today's jargon, we would call them missionaries. We would say that these are missionaries that they have a a mission to accomplish, and either in the same community as Gaius, or perhaps moving from there to another community was their objective. In verse 12, John refers to a certain Demetrius. You can look at that verse. Demetrius is well-spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know our testimony is true. Demetrius appears to be the man who carried this letter to Gaius, and he also seems to be one of these early Christian missionaries. And John, in fact, uh, would have been writing a letter of recommendation that Demetrius could carry with him to people that didn't know him, and they would receive him as if they were receiving John himself. That was a fairly common practice, so it's, it's interesting to think of the letter in, in that regard. So Demetrius is one of these potentially thousands of itinerant workers and was hoping to be helped on his way um, there by the church of Gaius. A second question that we could ask as we look at these verses is what exactly was Gaius expected to do? I think that there are three indications here. Uh, First of all, it says in verse five, uh, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers. I think in other versions it says, you're faithful in whatever you are doing for the brothers. So that's really not all that helpful. It could be any sort of different things. Um, But then in verse uh, six, it says, uh, you will do well to send them on their way. And in verse eight, we ought, therefore to show hospitality to such men. Well, out of those three uh, actions, I think maybe the second one is the most helpful for us, because um, when we think about the context that this letter was written, it wasn't just that there were itinerant missionaries that were circulating in the Mediterranean world. But there are actually many philosophers and orators and others that would go from town to town, and they would try to gather an audience and either charge for the the lecture or the speech that they would give, uh, or a lot of times they would pass the hat or uh, even beg for money uh, to be able to continue doing that. And John seems to be implicitly saying that it's not to be that way among Christians. It it does say that these workers uh, received no help from the pagans, so the Christian workers were different than these traveling uh, itinerant philosophers and that they were not expecting. It would be incongruous with the message of grace. You can imagine preaching the gospel and then charging uh, somebody for the privilege of hearing it. It just doesn't make sense. So where were these people supposed to get their help? Either they had means, their own means, to be able to do whatever was necessary, or they still had to have help from other believers. And that's what John is encouraging guys to do, to think about. It's also interesting when you you think about this uh, phrase, to send them on their way, he he attaches this other phrase, in a manner worthy of God. Now, that's that's amazing when you think about it. To send people, because they are doing God's work, they are advancing God's kingdom, that's That's very impressive. It's not just that they're doing a good work, but that they're helping God accomplish his work. And that by helping these workers, you're actually helping God himself. And that may actually draw to mind a phrase that uh, Jesus told his disciples. You may recall in Matthew, I think chapter 10, he says, uh, those who receive you receive me. So sometimes when the disciples were sent out two by two, uh, Jesus wasn't able to go there just yet, but the people that received the disciples, it was as if they were receiving Jesus and they would receive the same reward or the same attention from God himself. So in a manner worthy of God, it's not just to show hospitality as a nice thing to do, but to recognize the work that is being done. But the other thing I like about this particular verb and description here is the word send. Now, it looks like a, a pretty common word, in it, and it could be, uh, when you look at the New Testament language, uh, there are lots of words that have been translated send in our language. Uh, some of them are, are very common words. Uh, in fact, there's a, a very common term, uh, it's the term, the verb, tempo. But this is not that verb. In fact, this is that verb with a prefix attached to it that intensifies the action, and when it intensifies, it, it suggests to do more than just to send them out, uh, or it, it suggests to actually help them on their way. Maybe uh, an illustration will help here. I, uh, I can think of a different, different ways that you might send somebody from your house. <clears throat> you, you probably have had the experience of a um, salesman comes to the door. You know, a salesman that's wanted to sell an irrigation system for your lawn, or maybe he wants to climb up on your roof and check the, the status of the shingles up there and replace that roof if necessary, and he'll do the best job. And because of the, the number of people that come by, and usually we're caught doing something else, uh, your intention, like, probably like mine, is to think, I just want to send this guy on his way as quick as possible. You know, maybe not slam the door in his face, but close. So, that would be one way to possibly send somebody away. But you can also think of a, a situation where you've invited somebody over to your house for a dinner. And after an enjoyable dinner, everything went right, uh, food came out just right, conversation. And uh, you are thankful, you tell them, It's so great that you could come, that we could have this, these minutes together. I'm so glad that you took time out of your schedule. And maybe even walk them out uh, with them out to their car as you send them away. A lot more attention, personal touch, uh, because there's that affection there. But the sending here is actually even more intense than that. Uh, This verb suggests that that occasion when you've gone to visit your grandmother. You've you've all been there, I'm sure. You know, you go to your grandmother's house, and after a meal at your grandmother's house, she, she puts the remainders, the leftovers in a bag, and she sends them with you. She says, "Please take this." And maybe even throws in a few goodies just in case uh, you get hungry on the way, uh, and also slips in you know, a twenty-dollar bill or, or maybe some other money to, for gas just in case. And this is when you just live across town, you know, mind you. And please call when you get there. Uh, you know, she's concerned and she wants to make sure that your stay is not only enjoyable, but that you are able to do whatever else you need to do. That's the attitude that's involved with this verb uh, pro-pimpo here that John is using. It's a very, uh, it's a term of affection. It's a term of concern, a term of involvement. It's not just to uh, be warm and be filled and may God bless you. It's I want to make a commitment here and I want to help you on your way. That's what John is encouraging Gaius to do with ascending. A third question that we could ask, um, looking at this passage, is so what or why? And some of it is fairly obvious. I would think that uh, you want to do this because you want to see God's work expand. Uh, You want to see uh, God's work move into uh, new regions. So not only are we participating with God, John adds in verse 8, we show hospitality to such men in order that we may work together for the truth. In some version it says, uh, so that we can can become fellow workers for the truth. And that's really the idea, is that when we receive and when we uh, help and when we send out and support these men that are doing this work, we become partners with them. It's as if they're going to places that we can't go and doing things that perhaps we're not equipped to do, but we are with them as, going back to the beginning, as a 12th man, to help them fulfill what they need to do. So that's the idea here is that it's not just a group of people that showed up and that they're removed from the scene and and that's the end of it, but it's that you can become a partner with these men in their work. Thinking of some specifics here, uh, you can imagine in the first century that um, somebody came to Gaius' community and uh, they're moving on to do an evangelistic campaign in a nearby city, um, but it's still a three day walk to get there and the community the church rather uh, could think, well, a three days' walk or it's a half day's journey by boat uh, let's uh let's pay for a ticket on that bo- the next boat so that they can get there and start the campaign that much sooner, or it could be that the person is has to stop in that community and and do some odd jobs. Uh, to gather provisions, either for the journey itself or for the, the time that they'll be engaged in the work. And the congregation could think, well, we've got stuff here that maybe could help. Why don't you take some of our stuff? And uh, you can be that much further along. and You can dedicate full time to the work instead of having to split time. Nothing wrong with a missionary working at a, at a secular job, but the thought here is to be as efficient as possible and to be dedicated to the work. Now, it's not obviously just an illustration for the first century. Uh, When you think about modern times, we use the term missionary now, and they're organized a little differently. We have missionary agencies, and uh, objectives may be more precise, and we have uh, some different things going on. But the fundamental principle is still the same, that these missionaries go out, and they need help. Sometimes they don't, a lot of times they don't ask for it, but they could use it. And I'm not thinking of financial help here necessarily Uh, As Mark has mentioned, Beck and I uh, spent over 20 years in Brazil, and uh, as we think back about uh, among the many opportunities that we had to come to the States, there are literally dozens and dozens of times and instances that we can think of in which people helped us uh, with specific needs. Uh, I I can think of many that involved people in this congregation, Uh, times when we came back and needed a place to stay. Uh, We're looking forward to a time of fellowship with somebody, Uh, church secretaries that helped uh, stuff envelopes and put stamps on and uh, beyond their normal uh, responsibilities that week to get a prayer letter sent out. Uh, And even a few dramatic examples that I can share at some other time. But I I, I do wanna share a couple examples, just concrete. Um, There was early on in our, uh, our missionary life in Brazil, We got our girls started with piano lessons, actually keyboard lessons, but uh, Becca had a love of piano and wanted to transmit that to our kids, two girls being the older ones, they got started first. Uh, But when we came to the States on furlough, that was one thing that got set aside. Uh, A, it was hard to find a good piano teacher, and then B, we just couldn't afford it. It was more expensive here in the States than it was in Brazil. So we were putting on hold, the girls weren't complaining. (laughs) But we were thinking, if we go eight months without piano, it's gonna be that much harder for them to start when we get back to Brazil. It's at that point that a lady, an elderly lady in our church uh, came forward and we didn't even know her all that well, but she was a retired piano teacher and she said she wanted to help. Dorothy Minning for us is in the Bradford Hall of Fame because she took time to teach two girls piano during those eight months. And that made a huge difference for us. It may not sound all, I call it big of a deal, but it it really was. And we do know of families that for different reasons would leave the mission field because they felt like their kids in some way might be neglected. And we certainly weren't, didn't feel that way. Now, i uh, I'm not a piano player, but i I can think of somebody else that ministers especially to me uh, probably the hardest thing that I had to do as a missionary was when we left left oklahoma and and I left behind my dad, who was a recent widower so that was that was hard, but it became all that much harder a few years later when back on a visit you discovered that. dementia setting in, which was later diagnosed as Alzheimer's. So, come back as often as I could, have some very precious time with him, but those visits were few and far between. And it was at that point that a a man, a a pastor, uh, that I knew, but again, not that well, he said, I'd be glad to visit him. I'd be glad to drop in on him at the VA center. Haynes Laird another member of the Hall of Fame for me, just to keep me informed as to how my dad was doing. These are a few examples, and there's literally hundreds and hundreds of more that could be mentioned here, not just that we have had happen to us, but that you can think of, maybe opportunities or things that you've done. And the question comes up, well, why would somebody not want to do that? It's just, it's, it's an overflow of, of the love of Christ in our hearts that you would want to help people, and especially people that are engaged in this type of, of work. But, I, you know, life is, is, is complicated sometimes. Uh, our lives are all busy, and, and there are things that come up, and there are reasons why we can or can't do certain things. I've been there. You've been there. Um, but I do think it's interesting that John himself encountered some resistance to this kind of proposal. If you look down, and we won't open these verses as much, but in verses 9 through 11, he talks about another individual in this letter, uh, a certain Diotrephes. And Diotrephes is interesting because he was one of the leaders, perhaps a co-leader of the same church with Gaius. And yet, John describes him in these ways. He says, he loves to be first. He refuses to welcome the brothers. In verse 11, he suggests that this man is evil. He says, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. So, I don't imagine that your uh, problems are nearly the same as those that John was, was facing, but John was saying, hey, we need to support these missionaries anyway, you know, despite the resistance or the, uh, the obstruction that somebody may raise. So that's what I want to encourage us as a church to be thinking about and to be doing is how we can, as a church, do more to help our missionary partners. Uh, as Mark has mentioned, we have 18 different partners. Uh, and sometimes it's hard in a large church to keep track with everybody. There are some that are better known than others because uh, they've been here more recently. Uh, some of their ministries are, are ministries that we participate in more frequently. Uh, and I dare say that there are some missionaries that we support that um, maybe 10 years ago, they were in attendance. They were sitting right here where you are, uh, but it's been a while, and we just don't know really what's going on. Uh, we haven't kept track with them. They get a monthly check, but maybe not a whole lot more than that, and we, I think we can do better than that. Uh, we can establish a, a closer relationship and a partnership with them. So, uh, the Global Outreach Team has has worked in the last few months, and, and we've I've uh, put together some ideas you've got in your bulletin. Uh, don't look at it right now, it's just it's a brochure that will uh, mention three different action steps or possibilities for you to get engaged with our missionary partners. And um, I would encourage you to take this home, or read through it, uh, maybe discuss it with your spouse, with the community group leader. Uh, but let me just summarize real briefly two of these three opportunities. Uh, one is what we are calling adoption. Missionary adoption. And this adoption process, adoption sounds like a very serious thing, and, and we want it to, to come across that way. It's not just a, oh, I, I know some missionary, but to establish a, a connection uh, that you are in, to some degree in a relationship with this missionary. You're, you're part of his team. So we want, we'd like to see every member of Wildwood, every member of Wildwood adopt at least one of our missionary partners. Now, the way that we're going about this is through the small group process. So we'd love to see every adult fellowship group, every uh, community group, and if you're not part of one of those, uh, every family, every family adopt one of our church missionaries. We've actually got a, a table set up out here in the gathering hall. If you're curious, who are they? Um, we've got a map downstairs, but out here in the gathering hall, you can grab a, a one-page bio on all of our missionaries or in any of them and take that home and begin this uh, contact. Uh, with adoption, we're actually thinking about four different things that would be included. One is to simply know the missionary, just to, to become acquainted with their family, to know where they are serving, uh, something of what they're doing. You have to know the intricate details, but just something. A second thing is to encourage them periodically. Uh, and that could be as simple as writing a quick email saying, hey, uh, heard the good news, praying for you, something real quick, but to encourage the people in the field. A third would be to engage the missionary whenever they do come to Norman. Uh, it may be, uh, fairly infrequently, but whenever they come, to make them know, help them know that they are esteemed as people and their work is valued. It could be an invitation to come visit you, uh, let's go out to eat, let's do something together, but that they're not just a, somebody passing through. A fourth thing is with the adoption process is to pray. To take that information, that that connection, and to pray regularly for the missionary. Uh, To pray with your family, uh, pray at times that you have, as you're remembering other requests, but just say, Lord bless them, and you know enough of what's going on that you can at least uh, give some specificity to that request. The second uh, idea that this brochure brings up is what we are calling the 3J network, and 3J simply stands for Third John. So it's a network that we are setting up now of services and uh, potential material things that could be offered to help, either loaned or, or given to the missionaries. Uh, when John talks about whatever you are doing, that sometimes that whatever is pretty broad, And so we're not getting specific on exactly what we're expecting, but we're counting on the creativity of everyone to come up with something. And I have no doubt that in the church that most people, if not all, could think of some talent that they could share that would be of benefit to somebody in our missionary community. Uh, Or perhaps something that you could loan or something that you could give uh, that would also be of help to, to people either as they come through Norman, or even while they're on the field. So we would just encourage you to think in those terms. Uh, You can look on the church website for more information. You can also check for the folks here in the hallway, uh, in the Gathering Hall, and it only takes a few minutes to get set up with this network, but we'd like to be proactive with this, to not just wait until the needs come to us, and then a few people respond, as is generally the case, but that everybody's aware of this, and everybody is indicating a desire uh, to help out, I need to bring this to a conclusion, but uh, we're obviously in the midst of another sporting event now. Uh, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics are going on. One of the most famous Olympic athletes of this last century was also one of the greatest missionaries that the church has had. The man I'm thinking of is Eric Little. If you've seen the movie Cherries of Fire, you know a little bit of a story. He was a a track and field athlete, a sprinter, that was uh, chosen by the British team to represent that nation at the 1924 Paris Olympics. But Little, after he received this invitation, noticed that the schedule had him running heats for his race on Sunday. And being a devout Christian, and and according to his beliefs, he, he thought that that was not right. So he stepped back, and the criticism started immediately. And how can you do this, uh, especially from his own countrymen? How in the world there was intense pressure, but he held his ground. And instead of running the 100-meter dash, he signed up for the 400-meter race, which if you know anything about track and field, it's, just, it's vastly different. It's, it's a different, different beast altogether. But his, his times, which were not great, they, they were pretty good, but still somewhat modest, Um, he was signed up to represent Great Britain. When the day of the the race came, uh, the runners getting into the starting blocks, the trainer for the American Olympic team came up to him and handed him a small piece of paper, and on that paper, there were seven words. It was a quotation from 1 Samuel 2.30, which says, Those who honor me, I will honor. So Little ran the race, won, established a world record in the process, a record that lasted for 12 years, in fact. Went the following year as missionary to China, where he served for 20 years until he died in a Japanese internment camp in 1945. Eric Little is known worldwide today, and the effects of his ministry, of his life, are, are, are great. But I, I do think, what, how would it have been different if that trainer had thought, no, I'm part of the American team, and, and didn't think to go give him a, an encouraging note Would that have made a difference in Little's uh, performance? Maybe just a few hundredths of a second? Maybe just enough to move from first to second? Maybe just enough to not establish that world record? Maybe just enough for Eric Little to pass into history as an obscure figure? That person who was effectively a 12th man for Eric Little should deserve some of the credit. Some of the encouragement that little could count on throughout the rest of his career was undoubtedly due to that unknown athletic trainer. Well, you and I have the opportunity to become a 12th man for a missionary. And we can join forces with them and and offer them, as it were, a home field advantage wherever they may be serving. It's time for us to suit up.
1: Thanks, Kevin. Hey, praise God. You know, this hit me first service as we were reflecting on these verses together. Um, But just, just the power of normal, you know, what is normal in a place is really powerful. It influences our behavior. It influences the things that we like, the things that we do. Uh, what's normal in a place? And really, what, what Kevin is talking about is in the church of Jesus Christ, um, if you know Christ, the, the body that you're a part of, and why would Community Church as a, as a segment of that, uh, it is normal within the body of Christ for us to care about and support in various ways in whatever we do, taking the good news of Jesus Christ to our city, yes, but also to the ends of the earth, and we have the opportunity to partner together with these these eighteen uh, sets of missionaries that Wildwood has sent out um, specifically in ten different countries around the world. We have the chance to be a twelfth man with them, and the tracks are laid for us to take a deeper step into involvement with that. And so, thanks so much, Kevin, for for leading us in that time today, and and. Uh, Thanks to the Global Outreach Team for how they have worked to help make some of those connections for us as well.